Welcome to Digital Detectives, reports from the battlefront. We'll discuss computer forensics, electronic discovery, and information security issues and what's really happening in the trenches. Not theory, but practical information that you can use in your law practice, right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to the 99th edition of Digital Detectives. We're glad to have you with us. I'm Sharon Nelson, president of Sensei Enterprises, a digital forensics, cybersecurity, and information technology firm in Fairfax, Virginia. And I'm John Simic, vice president of Sensei Enterprises. Today on Digital Detectives, our topic is e-discovery, major developments in 2018, and a look ahead. Before we get started, I'd like to thank our sponsor. We'd like to thank PINow.com. If you need a private investigator you can trust, visit PINow.com to learn more. Our guest today is Doug Austin. Doug is the Vice President of Products and Services for Cloud9. He has over 30 years of experience providing legal technology consulting, technical project management, and software development services to numerous commercial and government clients. Doug is also the editor of the Cloud9-sponsored eDiscovery Daily blog, which is a trusted resource for eDiscovery news and analysis and has received a JD Super Reader's Choice Award as a top eDiscovery author for 2017 and 2018. We're glad to have you with us again, Doug. Well, thanks, John and Sharon, for having me. Uh, wow, 99 podcasts. That's a lot. I've, I've got to hand it to you guys. I'm a big fan of your podcast series, and I'm a big fan of Sharon's uh, Ride the Lightning blog as well. Well, thank you very much, and, and as you know, uh, we are fans in return. But for those who don't know, please tell us a little bit about your eDiscovery Daily blog, which, which is such a great source of information about both developments in eDiscovery and, in particular, cases. I love how you cover all the cases that are significant. And, and so tell us about the blog and its mission. Well, thanks, Sharon. Our blog is called eDiscovery Daily, uh, which, like I'd like to say, oddly enough, is a daily blog about eDiscovery. Um, <laughs> it's an educational blog, and it's been around for nearly eight and a half years now. Uh, it covers eDiscovery trends, uh, best practices, and as you mentioned, case law. In fact, actually, uh, late last year, we just covered our 500th case all time. So we're excited wow. about that. We've got over 2,000 lifetime posts uh, that are still up on the site. And the blog really has become a daily read for a lot of legal professionals. So we're very proud of that, and uh, I'm proud to be the editor and primary author for the blog. Well, Doug, you cover a lot of trends on, on your blog, but going back to last year, to 2018, were, were there any notable trends that, that you want to tell our listeners about that kind of stood out? Well, John, I, there were definitely a handful that I would call notable one certainly is the trend for e-discovery to spread uh, to collection uh, from other devices, such as mobile devices and even Internet of Things or IoT devices. Uh, that's certainly become more prominent. You're seeing a lot more cases uh, with IoT implications on the criminal side, and you're definitely seeing mobile devices relevant in just about any case these days, civil or criminal. That's certainly one notable trend that I've been seeing. But I guess if you were going to say that 2018 was the year of anything, I would have to say it would be the year of data privacy. For example, last year we saw the General Data Protection Regulation, or GDPR, go into effect in Europe in May. Uh, now, I think most people now know about GDPR, though I'm not sure that a lot of people have yet taken action to comply with GDPR, despite the fact that the 
potential fines for failing to comply are huge, up to 4% of annual revenue or 20 million euro, whichever is greater. And just because it's a European regulation doesn't mean it doesn't affect a lot of companies here in the States. Even if you're like a local whiskey producer in Kentucky and you send 10 bottles to a client in France, you're subject to the rules of GDPR. Uh, It's estimated to affect far more than half of U.S. companies. Now, we haven't seen a significant GDPR fine yet, but with all the high-profile data breaches that are in the news these days, i got to feel like it's only a matter of time before we do. Here in the States, we also saw a privacy law that was enacted with the California Consumer Privacy Act of 2018 that was passed in June and is set to go into effect uh, January of next year. Like GDPR, this law gives Californians much the same rights with their personal data that Europeans get with GDPR. And once again, if you do business with California consumers, you'd be subject to this law even if you're not located in California. So most businesses are probably subject to at least one of these data privacy laws. And according to Verizon's annual data breach report from last year, over two-thirds of data breaches take months to discover. So there are probably already a number of companies that have GDPR and eventually California violations that probably don't even know it yet. As far as the year of data privacy goes, we've also seen several cases that relate to privacy concerns and the battle between privacy and relevancy seems to be coming up more common. I'm sure we'll get to talk about at least a couple of those. Well, I noted this morning, uh, Doug, that the French data protection watchdog has fined Google $57 million uh, under GDPR. So that's, Uh I mean, that's amazing. That's breaking news, and I hadn't seen that yet, so that's. uh, (laughs) I'm not surprised it knew it was coming, so uh, very interested to read about that. Yeah, we knew it was coming. I think also to to support your trends, Doug, uh, you know, we can confirm that we hardly ever see a computer in our forensics lab anymore. It's all mobile devices, so you're right right on track with that comment, too. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, we see a lot of them as well. So if you had to pick the most important e-discovery case of 2018, which one would you pick and why? Well, so I'm going to hedge here a little bit because I would probably say there's a most important case each for civil and criminal litigation. In criminal litigation, I would have to say it's obviously Carpenter v. U.S. For those who don't know, this case involved a man named Timothy Carpenter who was arrested and convicted partially on the basis of cell site location information uh, that was obtained uh, without a warrant. He was arrested for, I believe, robberies uh, that were committed. Carpenter appealed, and the appeal went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, which ruled on a very narrow 5-4 to four split. Um, Chief Justice Roberts wrote the majority opinion, uh, which ruled that the government must obtain a warrant in order to access cell phone records, and that the Fourth Amendment was designed to protect those personal rights. Certainly, I think it's obvious that this case will have tremendous impact on how law enforcement conducts investigations that involve cell phone information, which has become one of the most important sources of evidence in criminal cases, for sure. So that's, to me, another reason why 2018 was the year of data privacy. On the civil side, I would probably have to say it was Waymo v. Uber. Um, this case was interesting. <laughs> not, I know. Remember that one? That was fun. Uh, it was not uh, yeah, yeah, it sure was. <laughs> yes. Um, and obviously, one of the cool, fun things about it was it involved claims of stolen technology related to driverless cars. So that's obviously interesting right there. 
But what was interesting from an e-discovery standpoint was that it involved Uber's use of ephemeral messaging apps for communications. Uber used the app Wicker, which automatically deletes messages within a few minutes to up to a day or two. Waymo claimed that Uber was using Wicker to hide the ball with regards to discovery by using an app that didn't retain the communications. However, it eventually came to light that Waymo was also using their own ephemeral messaging app in some of their own communications. <laughs> so Judge Alsup didn't ultimately significantly penalize Uber for their use of Wicker. To me, this case, I think, illustrates just how prevalent messaging apps have become in the workplace. If you remember Yogi Berra, uh, Yogi was once asked by a reporter what he thought about a particular New York restaurant, and he said, nobody goes there anymore. It's too crowded. So, you know, that's, that's Yogi for you. But let's face it, when you want to get a hold of a colleague in a hurry, many people don't send an email anymore because we all get so many emails that they tend to get lost in the shuffle. So when it comes to email and urgent communications, nobody goes there anymore. It's too crowded. Now, if you want to get a hold of someone in a hurry, you do so via text message or some other messaging app. And millennials these days seem to be much more comfortable talking with their thumbs than with their voices. So um, <laughs> messages, I would say, are replacing phone calls in a lot of cases. So as you can imagine, that obviously has discovery ramifications, as nearly every case these days involves evidence from text or other messaging apps, which means that lawyers have to be more proactive in making sure they preserve, collect, process, review, and produce from these sources as well. Well, I, I love the Yogi Berra thing, Doug. I, I, I hadn't I, I hadn't heard that one before. So no, I'm gonna, that, I'm that was sure. new to me too. I love yeah, that. So, <laughs> well, <laughs> had to throw that one out well, there. <laughs> oh, Yogi's always good for for something. Um, well, you, you talked about the most important e-discovery case. What about the the case that attracted the the most attention, and and why would you say that? Well, um, I would say for obvious reasons, I would still have to say that was Carpenter v. U.S. as well. And of course, as you can imagine, once uh, the Carpenter ruling came down, a lot of people who've been convicted based on cell site location information uh, that was obtained without a warrant, uh, they've gone and they've filed appeals to get their convictions thrown out. However, one of the things we're finding is that at least in some instances, those appeals are being denied uh, because the courts found that the government accessed that information in good faith reliance on the federal statute and civil court precedent that applied at the time. We actually covered two of those cases on our blog. So I would say Carpenter certainly attracted the most attention and certainly had the most impact, but it really looks like Carpenter's effect will probably be more on cases going forward, not really so much on previous convictions. Well, every year we usually get one really juicy, sexy sanctions case that everybody's talking about. Did we have any in 2018, Doug? We certainly didn't have any I would call great, but we certainly had a couple of fun ones. Uh, so uh, I'll give you a couple of those. Um, as, as, okay. long as you weren't getting sanctioned, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I, yeah that's right. Yes. Yeah, uh, thankfully, no involvement by us. Uh, one fun one was Nunez v. Rushton where the defendant infringed the plaintiff's copyright in her novel by copying protected elements of her book. Um, she also created a number of sock puppet accounts on Google and Yahoo to post positive reviews of her book and negative reviews of the plaintiff's book. <laughs> Honestly, I didn't even know that fake social media accounts were known as sock puppet accounts until I read this case, so I learned something. <laughs> um, after the plaintiff discovered the defendant's identity, the defendant deleted most of her sock puppet accounts, 
but not before using them to criticize efforts to investigate her infringing novel. Ultimately, after the case was filed, when the plaintiff made a discovery request for those accounts, the defendant deleted one of her remaining Google Sock Puppet accounts, which led to an adverse inference sanction uh, regarding the bad faith deletion of that account. So that was kind of an interesting, fun case that I guess uh, taught you a little bit about what people do to uh, try to pump themselves up uh, in social media. True. And the price they pay. (laughs) And the price they pay for not doing it legitimately. So... Another case we covered uh, this year was uh, Lee v. Trees, where the plaintiff, whose name was Sarah Lee, I kid you not, um, she (laughs) sued her former employer for wrongful termination. Uh, The defendant requested that she provide her supporting materials in electronic form in their native format, but she only produced print copies, and she only produced one of her four or five cell phones. Now, I don't know who needs four or five cell phones, but I guess it just goes to show that nobody doesn't like Sarah Lee. Oh, 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 oh. bad, bad. <laughs> Sorry. I can't resi- I, every time I talk about that case, I can't resist that pun. <laughs> anyway. you know, all the listeners now are going to be, they're going to be Googling, why is this so funny? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, forensic examination of the one phone that was produced found at least 44 text messages actually resided in the phone's unsent folder and were interspersed with fragments of actual text conversations. So obviously the, that's uh, what happened when it was printed and why the native uh, data can belie what's uh, produced in print. Um, as a result, the judge in that case granted the defendant's motion for terminating sanctions and dismissed the plaintiff's claims with prejudice. So that was, uh, that was a fun learning experience too. Well, before we move on to our next segment, let's take a quick commercial break. Does your law firm need an investigator for a background check, civil investigation, or other type of investigation? PINow.com is a -a one-of-a-kind resource for locating investigators anywhere in the U.S. and worldwide. The professionals listed on PINow understand the legal constraints of an investigation, are up-to-date on the latest technology, and have extensive experience in many types of investigation, including workers' compensation and surveillance. Find a pre-screened private investigator today. Visit www.pinow.com. Welcome back to Digital Detectives on the Legal Talk Network. Today, our topic is e-discovery, major developments in 2018, and a look ahead. Our guest today is Doug Austin. Doug is the Vice President of Products and Services for Cloud9, and as you now know, we are huge fans of his blog. So, Doug, how about technology-assisted review? Any interesting developments in TAR in 2018? Well, Sharon, uh, you know, there have been so many cases approving the use of TAR that at this point, we're really not seeing any disputes anymore on whether TAR is approved for use in litigation. Instead, what we're really seeing are cases that involve the execution of TAR, how well or poorly it was done, or maybe should be done. So in 2018, you could kind of say it was the best of TAR, it was the worst of TAR, or at least not a very good (laughs) TAR result. Um, Certainly the best of TAR was the detailed search and validation protocol. Uh, that was crafted by Special Master and also noted TAR expert Maura Grossman in the broiler chicken antitrust litigation. Uh, and that was uh, that protocol set expectations with regard to how search methods could be conducted. 
or should be conducted, whether they were uh, keyword search or TAR uh, slash CAL, continuous active learning. The protocol also addressed a document review validation protocol that involves specifications for QC sampling, which was excellent. So that's a guide and protocol that really anybody could reference in their own TAR case. So I think that was a real good example of the best of TAR. The not-so-good TAR case was another MDL involving class action against the airlines, which was the domestic airline travel antitrust litigation. Uh, in that case, the plaintiffs filed a motion requesting an extension of six months because they said there was an issue with United Airlines' core document production. Using TAR, United produced more than 3.5 million documents to them. But after sampling the production, the plaintiffs determined that only 600,000 or 17% of the documents were actually responsive. United actually subsequently agreed with that assessment when they did their own testing. The airlines opposed the plaintiff's request for an extension, though, and they tried to claim that the review wouldn't take that long uh, based on their assessment of a review rate of three documents per minute, which, not surprisingly, the plaintiffs called preposterous. Three documents per minute, I've yet to see anybody even approach two documents per minute, more like one and change, if that. So, Needless to say, ultimately, the judge granted the plaintiff's motion. So to me, this case really illustrates how important the human factor is in the TAR process. Your TAR result is only as good as the process that goes with it. If that's bad, your TAR result will be bad as well, regardless of how good the technology is. That's a very good way of putting it. It's Thanks. kind of analogous to, to garbage in, garbage out, right? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It, the, the, the technology is only one component in the solution there. Yep. If there's a mistake, you just make the mistake faster and more often. <laughs> <laughs> right. Good point. <laughs> well, well, Doug, what are some of some of the biggest e-discovery challenges that, that you think lawyers are facing today? Well, um, you know, I've already, certainly already discussed, uh, touched on discovery from various sources like mobile devices and IoT devices. And really, those increasing sources of discoverable data has made the discovery process more complex. As you both, I'm sure, know, the federal rules of 2015 address proportionality, and we're really starting to see a lot of cases limit the scope of a discovery in terms of data volume. But the sources from which that data may be obtained are multiplying. So the proportionality challenge, while becoming less deep, is now getting wider. So really, I would say the challenges for attorneys with regard to that are changing from data volume to more dealing with a variety of data sources and how to address them effectively. But to me, I think the biggest challenge facing lawyers today is pre-litigation uh, with uh, data privacy considerations that we've already discussed. And you've got growing issues like Me Too in the workplace. It's becoming more than ever important than ever to understand your organization's data before it even gets to the litigation stage. Organizations are really going to have to become start to start to become more proactive in looking for issues and addressing them before they develop into litigation. So that means a growing emphasis on compliance and investigations, the ability to look for personally identifiable information or PII, the ability to look for personal health information or PHI, and for ability to find other personal information, as well as to find indications of harassment in the workplace. You know, I'm a big advocate of information governance policies and organization data maps and things like that, but they only tell you which barn your haystack is located in, not necessarily where the needle is within that haystack. <laughs> so with the growing challenge of big data, it's going to take technology, I think, to get us to a point 
where we can be proactive to find the necessary data quickly and address those issues. I guess you could say technology got us into this mess, and it's going to have to get us out of this mess. I think you can say that with reference to a lot of topics. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. You've identified, Doug, a lot of challenges. How do you think lawyers are progressing in terms of getting the education to address those challenges? Well, we are seeing some positive momentum uh, in requiring lawyers to understand the technology. Um, I think we're up to like 34 states now that have some sort of technology competence ruler guidance. 34 or 35, I believe, last count. I think Louisiana was kind of a sort of a requiring it, was the most recent one I've seen. And we're up to at least two states now, Florida and North Carolina, uh, that actually require a portion of their CLE requirement to be technology-based CLE. I think there was a third one that was working on it last year, but I have not seen that become official yet. So we're seeing some progress. Still not a lot of teaching about electronic discovery in most law schools, from what I hear, um, unfortunately. And we still have a long way to go. Not to mention it's a moving target. I mean, as all the technology continues to change in advance, uh, that continues to change in advance what lawyers have to know. And we still see lawyers making the most fundamental errors, like the Manafort redaction flub that you just covered on your blog, Sharon. So it's really, to me, imperative these days for lawyers to at least have a rudimentary understanding of the technology and partner with someone who has an advanced understanding of technology if they're going to be able to provide competent representation for their clients. The cost is just too great for doing that, as I think we've seen in a number of cases recently. Doug, you alluded to Internet of Things devices earlier in, in criminal uh, litigation. How have these these millions and billions of IoT devices I- impacted discovery in, in those cases? Well, uh, you know, we've, we certainly, has, as I've already mentioned, you are seeing those devices becoming more common in criminal litigation cases. I'll give you a, a handful of examples. A lot of people may have heard about the murder case in New Hampshire where a judge uh, recently requested that Amazon hand over audio recordings from an Echo device that was present in a house where two women were found dead. We just covered a case of pretty recently on the blog that involved the murder of a woman in San Jose where her Fitbit recorded a rapid rise in her heart rate before it dropped off to nothing, which gave the police a clear time frame for her death. The time frame happened to coincide with a visit from her stepfather that was captured on surveillance cameras, many of which these days are also IoT devices, and he was arrested. Uh, There was another Fitbit case, uh, actually, that was covered on 48 Hours last year, where a victim's boyfriend was cleared because his Fitbit showed he was sleeping when she was killed. There's also other cases I've heard of. Uh, You know, you have these car infotainment systems where they track so much GPS uh, indications which doors have been opened and closed. I heard about a case where uh, apparently one person was in the area of a home invasion but claimed he was there alone. But when they looked at the data from his car infotainment system, they saw all the doors being opened and closed except for the driver's side door an hour or so before and then right there by the home invasion scene. So it's just amazing the type of data that's available these days to provide evidence in these cases. So we're seeing their use more in criminal cases. We're not really seeing so much in, uh, of their use in civil cases yet, but I expect that'll probably eventually change. 
the problem and the <laughs> challenge is that almost none of these devices make it easy to get the data out. So that's really going to only add to the discovery challenges that lawyers face today. Well, those stories, though, any of the IoT stories, are just so popular on the lecture circuit. Um, I save every last one of them in a folder just because people love to hear what their devices can tell about them and the actual application of IoT because most of us never thought when we started hooking all these things up to the Internet, we never thought of the extent of the privacy implications or how much these things were going to testify potentially for or against us. Well, one of these days we're going to have to sit down over a beer with Doug and tell him about all our IoT family law cases. <laughs> oh, yeah. I would love that. That would be a lot of fun. That would require a pitcher. <laughs> <laughs> uh, even better. <laughs> even better. So, so, Doug, let us uh, you know, go from uh, talking about all of these cases now to, to looking at 2019. So what do you see in your crystal ball for that year and beyond? Well, so, you know, I've already talked about the challenges of cybersecurity, data privacy, and Me Too. So if I were really going to pick an emerging trend that I think is going to be far-reaching, I really expect that the focus for litigation technology is really going to push further and further left on the EDR model toward the information governance stage. I think there's a lot of organizations that really don't have a lot of litigation that requires any sophisticated technological solutions to manage, but pretty much every organization has data privacy and they have workplace behavior considerations to worry about. So to me, I think the market for technologies that help address the growing compliance and investigations challenges that organizations face today, I feel like that market is actually going to eventually dwarf the market for the discovery technology that we see today. I just think that the need is going to be universal. It's going to be uh, significant, and organizations are really going to be compelled with all the, uh, the drivers that are forcing them to really figure out a way to use the technology to get a better understanding of their organization's data. So to me, if there's a new frontier in this space, I would say that's got to be it. Well, that's a pretty good prediction. And on that note, I will stop and thank you for being our guest again today. It was a pleasure to have you back. We do really, really, really enjoy your blog. It's one of the few that I actually look at every single day. Uh, and I know how, <laughs> I know since I do it, how long it takes to, to write a commendable blog post and get it right or try to. So it's just been such a pleasure to have you, Doug. Please come back and be with us again. My pleasure, Sharon and John. I would say likewise with your blog, and I will wait with bated breath to find out who your 100th <laughs> podcast guest will be and look forward to that. Okay. We don't know yet either, so. <laughs> okay, but we'll let, you, we'll let you know. <laughs> well, that does it for this edition of Digital Detectives. And remember, you can subscribe to all of the editions of this podcast at LegalTalkNetwork.com or on Apple Podcasts. And if you enjoyed our podcast, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. And you can find out more about Sensei's digital forensics, technology, and cybersecurity services at senseient.com. We'll see you next time on Digital Detectives. Thanks for listening to Digital Detectives on the Legal Talk Network. Check out some of our other podcasts on LegalTalkNetwork.com and in iTunes.